Chapter six of La Bas by Jory Karl Heismans. Translated by Keen Wallace. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Next morning Durtal woke later than usual. Before he opened his eyes, there was a sudden flash of light in his brain, and troops of demon worshippers, like the societies of which De Hermie had spoken, went defiling past him, dancing a saraband. A swarm of lady acrobats hanging head downward from trapezes and praying with joined feet, he said, yawning. He looked at the window. The panes were flowered with crystal fleur-de-lis and frost ferns. Then he quickly drew his arms back under the covers and snuggled up luxuriously a fine day to stay at home and work he said i will get up and light a fire come now a little courage and instead of tossing the covers aside he drew them up around his chin ah, i know that you are not pleased to see me taking a morning off he said addressing his cat which was hunched up on the counterpane at his feet gazing at him fixedly its eyes very black this beast though affectionate and fond of being caressed was crabbed and set in its ways it would tolerate no whims no departures from the regular course of things it understood that there was a fixed hour for rising and for going to bed and when it was displeased it allowed a shade of annoyance to pass into its eyes the sense of which its master could not mistake if he returned before eleven at night the cat was waiting for him in the vestibule scratching the wood of the door meowing even before durtal was in the hall then it rolled its languorous green golden eyes at him rubbed against his trouser leg stood up on its hind feet like a tiny rearing horse and affectionately wagged its head at him as he approached if eleven o'clock had passed it did not run along in front of him but would only very grudgingly rise when he came up and then it would arch its back and suffer no caresses when he came later yet it would not budge and would complain and groan if he took the liberty of stroking its head or scratching its throat this morning it had no patience with durtal's laziness it squatted on its hunkers and swelled up then it approached stealthily and sat down two steps away from its master's face staring at him with an atrociously false eye signifying that the time had come for him to abdicate and leave the warm place for a cold cat amused by its manoeuvres durtal did not move but returned its stare the cat was enormous common and yet bizarre with its rusty coat yellowish like old coke ashes and grey as the fuzz on a new broom with little white tufts like the fleece which flies up from the burnt-out faggot it was a genuine gutter cat long-legged with a wild beast head it was regularly striped with waving lines of ebony its paws were encircled by black bracelets and its eyes lengthened by two great zigzags of ink in spite of your killjoy character and your single-track mind you testy old bachelor you are a very nice cat said durtal in an insinuating wheedling tone then too for many years now i have told you what one tells no man you are the drain-pipe of my soul you inattentive and indulgent confessor never shocked you vaguely approve the mental misdeeds which i confess to you you let me relieve myself and you don't charge me anything for the service frankly that is what you are here for i spoil you with care and attentions because you are the spiritual vent of solitude and celibacy but that doesn't prevent you with your spiteful way of looking at me from being insufferable at times as you are today for instance the cat continued to stare at him its ears sticking straight up as if they would catch the sense of his words from the inflections of his voice 
it understood doubtless that durtal was not disposed to jump out of bed for it went back to its old place but now turned its back full on him oh come said durtal discouraged looking at his watch i've simply got to get up and go to work on gilles de Ray. and with a bound he sprang into his trousers the cat rising suddenly galloped across the counterpane and rolled itself up into the warm covers without waiting an instant longer how cold it is and durtal slipped on a knit jacket and went into the other room to start a fire i shall freeze he murmured fortunately his apartment was easy to heat it consisted simply of a hall a tiny sitting-room a minute bedroom and a large enough bathroom it was on the fifth floor facing a sufficiently airy court rent eight hundred francs it was furnished without luxury the little sitting-room durtal had converted into a study hiding the walls behind black wood bookcases crammed with books in front of the window were a great table a leather armchair and a few straight chairs he had removed the glass from the mantelpiece and in the panel just over the mantel-shelf which was covered with an old fabric he had nailed an antique painting on wood representing a hermit kneeling beside a cardinal's hat and purple cloak beneath a hut of boughs the colours of the landscape background had faded the blues to grey the whites to russet the greens to black and time had darkened the shadows to a burnt onion hue along the edges of the picture almost against the black oak frame a continuous narrative unfolded in unintelligible episodes intruding one upon the other portraying lilliputian figures in houses of dwarfs here the saint whose name durtal had sought in vain crossed a curly wooden sea in a sailboat there he marched through a village as big as a fingernail then he disappeared into the shadows of the painting and was discovered higher up in a grotto in the orient surrounded by dromedaries and bales of merchandise again he was lost from sight and after another game of hide-and-seek he emerged smaller than ever quite alone with a staff in his hand and a knapsack on his back mounting toward a strange unfinished cathedral it was a picture by an unknown painter an old dutchman who had perhaps visited certain of the italian masters for he had appropriated colours and processes peculiar to them the bedroom contained a big bed a chest of drawers waist-high and some easy chairs on the mantel were an antique clock and copper candlesticks on the wall there was a fine photograph of a botticelli in the berlin museum representing a plump and penitent virgin who was like a housewife in tears she was surrounded by gentlemen lady and little boy angels the languishing young men held spliced wax tapers that were like bits of rope the coquettish hoydens had flowers stuck in their long hair and the mischievous cherub pages looked rapturously at the infant jesus who stood beside the virgin and held out his hands in benediction then there was a print of bruegel engraved by cock the wise and the foolish virgins a little panel cut in the middle by a corkscrew cloud which was flanked at each side by angels with their sleeves rolled up and their cheeks puffed out sounding the trumpet while in the middle of the cloud another angel bizarre and sacerdotal with his navel indicated beneath his languorously flowing robe unrolled a banderole on which was written the verse of the gospel ecce sponsus venit exite obviamei beneath the cloud at one side sat the wise virgins good flemings with their lighted lamps and sang canticles as they turned the spinning wheel at the other side were the foolish virgins with their empty lamps four joyous gossips were holding hands and dancing in a ring on the greensward while the fifth played the bagpipe and beat time with her foot 
above the cloud the five wise virgins slender and ethereal now naked and charming brandished flaming tapers and mounted toward a gothic church where christ stood to welcome them while on the other side the foolish virgins imperfectly draped beat vainly on a closed door with their dead torches the blessed naivete of the primitives the homely touches in the scenes of earth and of heaven durtal loved this old engraving he saw in it a union of the art of an ostad purified and that of a thierry bou waiting for his grate in which the charcoal was crackling and peeling and running like frying grease to become red he sat down in front of his desk and ran over his notes let's see he said to himself rolling a cigarette we had come to the time when that excellent gilles de Ray begins the quest of the great work it is easy to figure what knowledge he possessed about the method of transmuting metals into gold alchemy was already highly developed a century before he was born the writings of albertus magnus arnaud de villeneuve and raymond lully were in the hands of the hermetics the manuscripts of nicolas flamel circulated and there is no doubt that gilles had acquired them for he was an avid collector of the rare let us add that at the epoch the edict of charles interdicting spagyric labours under pain of prison and hanging and the bull spondent pariter quas non exhibent which pope john the twenty second fulminated against the alchemists was still in vigour these treatises were then forbidden and in consequence desirable it is certain that gilles had long studied them but from that to understanding them is a far cry for they were written in an impossible jargon of allegories twisted and obscure metaphors incoherent symbols ambiguous parables enigmas and ciphers and here is an example he took from one of the shelves of the library a manuscript which was none other than the ash mezareff the book of the jew abraham and of nicolas flamel restored translated and annotated by eliphas levy this manuscript had been lent him by des hermies who had discovered it one day among some old papers in this is what claims to be the recipe for the philosopher's stone for the grand quintessential and tinctural essence the figures are not precisely clear he said to himself as he ran his eye over the pen drawings retouched in colour representing under the title of the chemical coitus various bottles and flasks each containing a liquid and imprisoning an allegorical creature a green lion with a crescent moon over him hung head downward doves were trying to fly out through the neck of the bottle or to peck away through the bottom the liquid was black and undulated with waves of carmine and gold or white and granulated with dots of ink which sometimes took the shape of a frog or a star sometimes the liquid was milky and troubled sometimes flames rose from it as if there were a film of alcohol over the surface eliphas levy explained the symbolism of these bottled volatiles as fully as he cared to but abstained from giving the famous recipe for the grand magisterium he was keeping up the pleasantry of his other books in which beginning with an air of solemnity he affirmed his intention of unveiling the old arcana and when the time came to fulfil his promise begged the question alleging the excuse that he would perish if he betrayed such burning secrets the same excuse which had done duty through the ages served in masking the perfect ignorance of the cheap occultists of the present day as a matter of fact the great work is simple said durtal to himself folding up the manuscript of nicolas flamel the hermetic philosophers discovered and modern science after long evading the issue no longer denies that the metals are compounds and that their components are identical they vary from each other according to the different proportions of their elements 
with the aid of an agent which will displace these proportions one may transmute mercury for example into silver and lead into gold and this agent is the philosopher's stone mercury not the vulgar mercury which to the alchemists was but an aborted metallic sperm but the philosopher's mercury called also the green lion the serpent the milk of the virgin the pontic water only the recipe for this mercury or stone of the sages has ever been revealed and it is this that the philosophers of the middle ages the renaissance all centuries including our own have sought so frantically and in what has it not been sought said durtal thumbing his notes in arsenic in ordinary mercury tin salts of vitriol saltpetre and nitre in the juices of spurge poppy and purslane in the bellies of starved toads in human urine in the menstrual fluid and the milk of women now gilles de ray must have been completely baffled alone at tiffauges without the aid of initiates he was incapable of making fruitful experiments at that time paris was the centre of the hermetic science in france the alchemists gathered under the vaults of notre dame and studied the hieroglyphics which nicolas flamel before he died had written on the walls of the charnal des innocents and on the portal of saint jacques de la boucherie describing cabalistically the preparation of the famous stone the marshal could not go to paris because the english soldiers barred the roads there was only one thing to do he wrote to the most celebrated of the southern transmuters and had them brought to tiffauges at great expense from documents which we possess we can see his supervising the construction of the athanor or alchemist's furnace buying pelicans crucibles and retorts he turned one of the wings of his chateau into a laboratory and shut himself up in it with antonio di palermo francois lombard and jean petit goldsmith of paris all of whom busied themselves night and day with the concoction of the great work they were completely unsuccessful at the end of their resources these hermetists disappeared and there ensued at tiffauges an incredible coming and going of adepts and their helpers they arrived from all parts of brittany poitou and maine alone or escorted by promoters and sorcerers gilles de Sillet and roger de briqueville cousins and friends of the marshal scurried about the country beating up the game and driving it into gilles de ray while a priest of his chapel eustache blanchet went to italy where workers in metals were legion while waiting gilles de ray not to be discouraged continued his experiments all of which missed fire he finally came to believe that the magicians were right after all and that no discovery was possible without the aid of satan and one night with a sorcerer newly arrived from poitiers jean de la riviere he betakes himself to a forest in the vicinity of the chateau de tiffauges with his servitors henriet and poitou he remains on the verge of the wood into which the sorcerer penetrates the night is heavy and there is no moon gilles becomes nervous scrutinizing the shadows listening to the muted sounds of the nocturnal landscape his companions terrified huddle close together trembling and whispering at the slightest stirring of the air suddenly a cry of anguish is raised they hesitate then they advance groping in the darkness in a sudden flare of light they perceive de la riviere trembling and deathly pale clutching the handle of his lantern convulsively in a low voice he recounts how the devil has risen in the form of a leopard and rushed past without looking at the evocator without saying a word the next day the sorcerer vanished but another arrived this was a bungler named dumenil 
he required gilles to sign with blood a deed binding him to give the devil all the devil asked of him except his life and soul but although to aid the conjurements gilles consented to have the office of the damned sung in his chapel on all saints day satan did not appear the marshal was beginning to doubt the powers of his magicians when the outcome of a new endeavour convinced him that frequently the devil does appear an evocator whose name has been lost held a seance with gilles and de sillet in a chamber at tiforges on the ground he traces a great circle and commands his two companions to step inside it sillet refuses gripped by a terror which he cannot explain he begins to tremble all over he goes to the window opens it and stands ready for flight murmuring exorcisms under his breath gilles bolder stands in the middle of the circle but at the first conjugations he too trembles and tries to make the sign of the cross the sorcerer orders him not to budge at one moment he feels something seize him by the neck panic-stricken he vacillates supplicating our lady to save him the evocator furious throws him out of the circle gilles precipitates himself through the door de sillet jumps out of the window they meet below and stand aghast howls are heard in the chamber where the magician is operating there is a sound as of sword strokes raining on a wooden billet then groans cries of distress the appeals of a man being assassinated they stand rooted to the spot when the clamour ceases they venture to open the door and find the sorcerer lying in pools of blood his forehead caved in his body horribly mangled they carry him out gilles smitten with remorse gives the man his own bed bandages him and has him confessed for several days the sorcerer hovers between life and death but finally recovers and flees from the castle gilles was despairing of obtaining from the devil the recipe for the sovereign magisterium when eustache blanchet's return from italy was announced eustache brought the master of florentine magic the irresistible evoker of demons and larvae francesco prelati this man struck awe into gilles barely twenty-three years old he was one of the wittiest the most erudite and the most polished men of the time what had he done before he came to install himself at tiforges there to begin with gilles the most frightful series of sins against the holy ghost that has ever been known his testimony in the criminal trial of gilles does not furnish us any very detailed information on his own score he was born in the diocese of lucca at pistoia and had been ordained a priest by the bishop of arezzo some time after his entrance into the priesthood he had become the pupil of a thaumaturge of florence jean de fontenelle and had signed a pact with a demon named baron from that moment onward this insinuating and persuasive learned and charming abbe must have given himself over to the most abominable of sacrileges and the most murderous practices of black magic at any rate gilles came completely under the influence of this man the extinguished furnaces were relighted and that stone of the sages which prelati had seen flexible frail red and smelling of calcinated marine salt they sought together furiously invoking hell their incantations were all in vain gilles disconsolate redoubled them but they finally produced a dreadful result and prelati narrowly escaped with his life one afternoon eustache blanchet in a gallery of the chateau perceives the marshal weeping bitterly plaints of supplication are heard through the door of a chamber in which prelati has been evoking the devil the demon is in there beating my poor francis i implore you go in cries gilles but blanchet frightened refuses then gilles makes up his mind in spite of his fear 
he is advancing to force the door when it opens and prelati staggers out and falls bleeding into his arms prelati is able with the support of his friends to gain the chamber of the marshal where he is put to bed but he has sustained so merciless a thrashing that he goes into delirium and his fever keeps mounting gilles in despair stays beside him cares for him has him confessed and weeps for joy when prelati is out of danger the fate of the unknown sorcerer and of prelati both getting dangerously wounded in an empty room under identical circumstances i tell you it's a remarkable coincidence said durtal to himself and the documents which relate these facts are authentic they are indeed excerpts from the procedure in gilles trial the confessions of the accused and the depositions of the witnesses agree and it is impossible to think that gilles and prelati lied for in confessing these satanic evocations they condemned themselves by their own words to be burned alive if in addition they had declared that the evil one had appeared to them that they had been visited by succubi if they had affirmed that they heard voices smelled odours even touched a body we might conclude that they had had hallucinations similar to those of certain bicetre subjects but as it was there could have been no misfunctioning of the senses no morbid visions because the wounds the marks of the blows the material fact visible and tangible are present for testimony imagine how thoroughly convinced of the reality of the devil a mystic like gilles de Rey must have been after witnessing such scenes in spite of his discomfitures he could not doubt and prelati half killed must have doubted even less that if satan pleased they should finally find this powder which would load them with riches and even render them almost immortal for at that epoch the philosopher's stone passed not only for an agent in the transmutation of base metals such as tin lead copper into noble metals like silver and gold but also for a panacea curing all ailments and prolonging life without infirmities beyond the limits formally assigned to the patriarchs singular science ruminated durtal raising the fender of his fireplace and warming his feet in spite of the railleries of this time which in the matter of discoveries but exhumes lost things the hermetic philosophy was not wholly vain the master of contemporary science dumas recognizes under the name of isomery the theories of the alchemists and berthelot declares no one can affirm a priori that the fabrication of bodies reputed to be simple is impossible then there have been verified and certified achievements besides nicolas flamel who really seems to have succeeded in the great work the chemist van helmont in the eighteenth century received from an unknown man a quarter of a grain of philosopher's stone and with it transformed eight ounces of mercury into gold at the same epoch helvetius who combated the dogma of the spagyrics received from another unknown a powder of projection with which he converted an ingot of lead into gold helvetius was not precisely a charlatan neither was spinoza who verified the experiment a credulous simpleton and what is to be thought of that mysterious man alexander Seton, who under the name of the cosmopolite went all over europe operating before princes in public transforming all metals into gold this alchemist who seems to have had a sincere disdain for riches as he never kept the gold which he created but lived in poverty and prayer was imprisoned by christian the second elector of saxony and endured martyrdom like a saint he suffered himself to be beaten with rods and pierced with pointed stakes and he refused to give up a secret which he claimed like nicolas flamel to have received from god and to think that these researches are being carried on at the present time 
only most of the hermetics now deny medical and divine virtues to the famous stone they think simply that the grand magisterium is a ferment which thrown into metals in fusion produces a molecular transformation similar to that which organic matter undergoes when fermented with the aid of eleven de hermie who is well acquainted with the underworld of science maintains that more than forty alchemic furnaces are now alight in france and that in hanover and bavaria the adepts are more numerous yet have they rediscovered the incomparable secret of antiquity in spite of certain affirmations it is hardly probable nobody need manufacture artificially a metal whose origins are so unaccountable that a deposit is likely to be found anywhere for instance in a lawsuit which took place at paris in the month of november eighteen eighty six between monsieur pope constructor of pneumatic city clocks and financiers who had been backing him certain engineers and chemists of the school of mines declared that gold could be extracted from common silex so that the very walls sheltering us might be places and the mansards might be loaded with nuggets at any rate he continued smiling these sciences are not propitious he was thinking of an old man who had installed an alchemic laboratory on the fifth floor of a house in the rue saint jacques this man named auguste redouté went every afternoon to the bibliothèque nationale and pored over the works of nicolas flamel morning and evening he pursued the quest of the great work in front of his furnace the sixteenth of march the year before he came out of the bibliothèque with a man who had been sitting at the same table with him and as they walked along together redoute declared that he was finally in possession of the famous secret arriving in his laboratory he threw pieces of iron into a retort made a projection and obtained crystals the colour of blood the other examined the salts and made a flippant remark the alchemist furious threw himself upon him struck him with a hammer and had to be overpowered and carried in a straitjacket to saint anne pending investigation in the sixteenth century in luxembourg initiates were roasted in iron cages the following century in germany they were clothed in rags and hanged on gilded gibbets now that they are tolerated and left in peace they go mad decidedly fate is against them durtal concluded he rose and went to answer a ring at the door he came back with a letter which the concierge had brought he opened it why what is this he exclaimed his astonishment grew as he read monsieur i am neither an adventuress nor a seeker of adventures nor am i a society woman grown weary of drawing-room conversation even less am i moved by the vulgar curiosity to find out whether an author is the same in the flesh as he is in his books indeed i am none of the things which you may think i am from my writing to you this way the fact is that i have just finished reading your last book she has taken her time murmured durtal it appeared a year ago melancholy as an imprisoned soul vainly beating its wings against the bars of its cage oh hell what a compliment anyway it rings false like all of them and now monsieur though i am convinced that it is always folly and madness to try to realize a desire will you permit that a sister in lassitude meet you some evening in a place which you shall designate after which we shall return each of us into our own interior the interior of persons destined to fall because they are out of line with their fellows adieu monsieur be assured that i consider you as somebody in a century of nobodies not knowing whether this note will elicit a reply i abstain from making myself known this evening a maid will call upon your concierge and ask him if there is a letter for madame maubel hmm 
said durtal folding up the letter i know her she must be one of these withered dames who are always trying to cash outlawed kiss tickets and soul warrants in the lottery of love forty-five years old at least her clientele is composed of boys who are always satisfied if they don't have to pay and men of letters who are yet more easily satisfied for the ugliness of authors as mistresses is proverbial unless this is simply a practical joke but who would be playing one on me i don't know anybody and why in any case he would simply not reply but in spite of himself he reopened the letter well now what do i risk if this woman wants to sell me an overripe heart there is nothing forcing me to purchase it i don't commit myself to anything by going to an assignation but where shall i meet her here no once she gets into my apartment complications arise for it is much more difficult to throw a woman out of your house than simply to walk off and leave her at a street corner suppose i designated the corner of the rue de sevres and the rue de la chaise under the wall of the abbe au bois it is solitary and then too it is only a minute's walk from here or oh, no i will begin vaguely naming no meeting-place at all i shall solve that problem later when i get her reply he wrote a letter in which he spoke of his own spiritual lassitude and declared that no good could come of an interview for he no longer sought happiness on earth i will add that i am in poor health that is always a good one and it excuses a man from being a man if necessary he said to himself rolling a cigarette well that's done and she won't get much encouragement out of it oh wait i omitted something to keep from giving her a hold on me i shall do well to let her know that a serious and sustained liaison with me is impossible for family reasons and that's enough for one time he folded the letter and scrawled the address then he held the sealed envelope in his hand and reflected of course i am a fool to answer her who knows what situations a thing like this is going to lead to i am well aware that whoever she be a woman is an incubator of sorrow and annoyance if she is good she is probably stupid or perhaps she is an invalid or perhaps she is so disastrously fecund that she gets pregnant if you look at her if she is bad one may expect to be dragged through every disgusting kind of degradation oh, whatever you do you're in for it he regurgitated the memories of his youthful amours deception disenchantment how pitilessly base a woman is while she is young to be thinking of things like that now at my age as if i had any need of a woman now but in spite of it all his pseudonymous correspondent interested him who knows perhaps she is good-looking or at least not very ill-looking it doesn't cost me anything to find out he re-read her letter no misspelling the handwriting not commercial her ideas about his book were mediocre enough but who would expect her to be a critic discreet scent of heliotrope he added sniffing the envelope oh well let's have our little fling and as he went out to get some breakfast he left his reply with the concierge end of chapter six